As I said before, this is the last in the series of forgiveness, not the last we will hear of forgiveness, as we have been thinking of what does it mean to forgive and the context in which we will be listening to this morning is the reaction of Jesus when he went into the temple in Jerusalem. And as he went into the temple in Jerusalem, he saw something that just caused his anger in him. This is what we call righteous anger. Not many of us know what it is to be righteously angry. Righteous anger is when you do not have any private uh, secret desire for self-gratification in your anger. When you do not have any motive other than absolute anger against what is being done. This is what we find in, in our Lord. He went into the temple. And by the way, for those of you who are familiar with this text, you will remember that Jesus went into the temple twice. He went into the temple the first time. In chapter 11 and verse 11, I think, it says he went in and he looked around. He, he, he was viewing what was taking place. And then he went back again into the mountain and he came back the following day and then he went into the mountain, uh, into, the, into the temple and his anger came to the fore when he said in verse 17, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations and you have made my house into a place for thieves. I sat at my desk working through what this text is saying and I don't know it has, if it has ever occurred to you that what we're going to find in Mark chapter 11 is the authority of Jesus to make sure that the house in which we worship is truly a place where we worship and it is not meant to, to, to do what we want in it. This is what they were doing. They were exchanging monies and selling things. And um, I, I, I want to be so careful because I want you to understand that I'm not talking about worshiping a, a building. But what I am talking about is worshiping in a building. See, we can worship the place. Uh, when I was a young boy, being brought up in Central America, uh, people who would pass a certain denominational structure Whenever they would pass by that building, the men would take their hats off and bow to the structure. This was a building. The women, when they passed by, would make the sign of the cross because they worship the place. And this is not what Jesus is saying. I want you to understand with me, first of all, and we get to the context between prayer and its relationship to forgiveness, 
Notice that Jesus identifies, Jesus identifies a place for gathering. He identifies a place for gathering. He calls it my house. My house. Not Peter's house. Not James' house. I was driving into town yesterday morning. And uh, as I was driving, getting onto Main Street, it just it was so funny. I drove by the Catholic Church at the corner there, and the name of the church is St. Edward's Church. Well, the church doesn't belong to St. Anybody. The church belongs to Christ. It is His house. But the interesting thing about this is that in the Old Testament, we have what is known as a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was, was, was constructed by instruction given by God for the place where he will meet with them. I will meet with you there. I won't meet with you over there, over there. Over. I, am, I, am, I want you to build this structure. And I'm going to jump ahead into Samuel. David wants to build a house for God. And Nathan thought that was a good idea. And he said to David, go ahead, David, and build a house. And that night, God spoke to Nathan. And he said, go back to David and tell him, no. He will not build for me a house. I will give instruction to his son, Solomon, who will build a house for me. There's much more to it, but I won't go into it this morning because it's not germane to the message. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, or first chapter 8, the temple is built. The temple then took the place of the tabernacle where God said he would meet with his people. If I were to ask you a question this morning, why did you come here to church? Were you forced to come? Did you come because you were invited? Did you come because it's a habit that you have? Or did you come to meet with God? That's what he said. Assemble the people unto me. The tabernacle, I will meet with you there. The temple, I will meet with you there. So that by the time we hear Jesus speaking in the New Testament about the house the Old Testament prophets understood that the structure that was there was there for the purpose of the people meeting with God. It was his house. The prophet Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah first in chapter 56 verse 7 says, My house, so that God literally owned the location where the people were meeting as belonging to him. Jeremiah chapter 7, my house. The word house means a dwelling, a dwelling. But it is interesting because another part of the Hebrew meaning of this word is a family, a family. So a house is the dwelling for a family. The house of God is a dwelling where the family of God comes to meet with God. The first time Jesus went into the temple, there was no meeting with God. 
there was, there was the stock exchange, if you please, taking place in the temple. They were selling things. I, I was, I, I was, <laughs> I went to the Christian bookstore Friday morning to pick up a book that I ordered, and they have just moved from where they were, <laughs> and they had the new place, and it's now advertised. We open from Monday to Saturday, eight to eleven, uh, eight to four, and on Sundays, eleven to four. Now, if I were a Pharisee, I'd turn around and go home. i say, if you open on Sunday, I'm not going to support you. No, I, would, I wouldn't do that, but I was surprised. You see, there was a day when, when, when the, the most important thing to the Christian was to be in the house of God. 11 o'clock. Well, if, they have eight, if you go to the service at 8 o'clock in the morning, you can be there for 11 o'clock. Un un unless it's a, you know, a real humdinger. But what I want to ask, my friends, do we have the sense that this place belongs to God and that we are here? That we are here because He has accepted the construction of this this physical thing we can see we call the church. Uh, let me suggest to you that this is not the church. The church is in front of me in the building. We are gathering here. We are assembled here unto him. Not the man who is speaking. This is not Saint anybody's church. Uh, when some of our men meet here and they pray, we would pray that people who drive by this place will and they will realize that the church meets in that building over there. And when they go there, they, they, they sing and they share and they listen to God's word because God said, assemble the people in the place where I will meet with them. Much more can be said. But that's the place for gathering. It was recognized by Jesus. It was accepted by God and God does not make little of the place that is consecrated for his glory and his praise to be declared. But not only do we have the place for gathering, we have the purpose. The purpose. Why do we gather? My house shall be called the house of prayer. <laughs> and, and I won't go into it right now, but if you, if you go into 1 Kings 8 you will see how, how Solomon spoke to God in prayer about the temple. And he said, when, when we sin against you, and from this place we pray to you, so that the, the physical structure was there, connected to the God of heaven. And, and my friends, we are not being presumptuous when we say we are here in the presence of God this morning. This is God's house. And we are here to pray. And the word to pray means to intercede. To be between. Prayer in, in, in the Greek means to worship. We are not here for any other purpose in as much 
as there are other purposes for which we could meet. But other purposes for which we could meet, those purposes must be influenced by the one purpose for which we're here. And the one purpose is to pray, to meet with God corporately, so that together we would encourage one another, so that together we will share with one another, so that together we could pray for one another. My friends, the most powerful tool that we have by God in which to, to live and to work through this world in which we live is the gift of prayer. That's the most powerful tool we have when nothing else will do. And, and don't we say it sometimes? I guess the last thing we can do, I guess the only thing we can do, and we say it almost with a sigh. Prayer is no longer that vital call of the soul to seek God because life is becoming such a challenge. Life is becoming such a burden. Life is becoming, in, 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 you know, I, I listen to the news, as you know, quite regularly. And, and I was telling, uh, Lois was telling me something about some woman in a, in a place who said, she, she's a Christian and she wants to be a dragon. And she was, she was designing her body to, like a dragon. I, I, I thought, boy, the, the devil certainly is having a field day now. My friends, no one should come into this place and feel other than the fact that they have been made in the image of God they're accepted as image bearers and we want to be able to come so that together as image bearers we could go to our Heavenly Father. This is why we're here. The purpose. Yet, I don't, I don't say this with any, anyone in mind, friends. No, it's not only this church. Almost every church you can go, perhaps with the exception of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York. That's the only place that you've got to look for a parking spot on a Wednesday night. <laughs> it's the only place that I know about. The prayer meeting is the least attended meeting in most of the churches in America. Yet Jesus said that is the purpose of the church. So then that's the purpose for the church. So when we pray, what are, the, what are the things that take place when we pray? I call it the divine, the divine particulars. And Jesus said in verse 25, okay, if the purpose of the church is to meet for prayer and praying and worship, Three things take place when we come together as we are this morning. Number one, this is what I call the upward ministry. When you stand to pray. The word stand does not mean standing up simply. The, the meaning of the word is to place one's self under the authority of another. When you stand to pray. 
when we pray, we are placing ourselves under the sovereign God in heaven. And we release, we acknowledge Him. We release our hearts, our minds, our being to Him. Because worship is, 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 the, is the delivering of our being to God. It, it, is, it is the means by which we place ourselves under His authority. I love, I love what Solomon said in 1 Kings 8, 27 to 29. Listen to what he said. Lord, we are building this house for you, but there is no house that can contain God. God is not confined to, to, a, to a, a, a place. God is not a tribal God. Our minds about God, my friends, must be so consumed by the greatness of God that when we stand to pray, we willingly submit to this God who can, the, the scripture says he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think. God is above what we know about him. Only by faith can we enter into that, that, that sphere where our minds are consumed by the greatness of God. So the first thing that takes place in praying is to realize the greatness of God. When we pray, we must personally and consciously discipline our minds to remember to whom we are speaking. Our priority when we enter the sanctuary is to remember that we are coming into the presence of one who knows everything about us, the one who has brought us through the week to assemble ourselves in the Lord's day so that once again we might come and find ourselves drinking, eating what he gives. As one, one pastor said, the pastor must be sure that he is actually Preparing a feast for the people of God to come on the Lord's day and then for them to eat. Spiritual feasting. And that's what I want for you this morning, friends. I want you to say like David in Psalm 139 when he walked into the temple, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, O God, and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked, twisted way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I come into the presence of a God who knows me. I come into a God who loves me even though he knows me. I come into the presence of a God who is able to go beyond what we, we, we love to look at. We love to look at the outward appearance but my friends, when we come into the presence of God, listen to, to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes into the innermost being of the reader. It divides between the soul and the spirit, and nothing is hidden from its vision. <laughs> so if I say I love you, I better mean it. <laughs> Because if I say I love you, 
and I don't really love you, God knows that because he searches the hearts. That's the upward ministry. That should take place every time we come together as we are meeting now. Secondly, there is what I call the outward. There's the upward and then there's the outward. Listen to what he says. When you stand praying, since the house of the Lord is the place of prayer, forgive. Forgive. Here's where prayer becomes connected to forgiveness. If you have anything against anyone, last week it was if anybody has anything against us, but this week it is if you have anything against anyone. The word is suggesting that you were the offender this week. Last week it was God who brought into the mind what may have happened to someone else because of my action. This week I become conscious of the fact. I remember. I remember how I spoke to my wife. I remember how I spoke to my husband. I remember how I spoke to my neighbor. It wasn't very nice. I have thoughts about them that I never thought I would have, but I do. Uh, listen, friends, let, let me, we've gone through this. So what I want to give you is seven things. I got my hands out this way. I want to give you seven things. First, let's ask the question, what is forgiveness? Just listen for a moment. Forgiveness is when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. When we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them. May I just stop for a moment and say this? Forgiveness doesn't mean that what we did didn't hurt. It doesn't mean we don't get angry. Because sometimes... That word forgiveness is so innocuous that we just think, okay, I forgive you. No, friends, this is something that hurt. And once we have dealt with the hurt, we take it to God. And then God works in us so that we are able to go through this process of forgiving. So I want to make sure that you do not think that I'm saying you should just get over it. No, no, none at all. So we wish them well, grieve at their calamities. <laughs> Remember what I was saying, and I, I really mean it's funny, but I was saying it. When California was having all the fires and all the, the mudslides and so on, before I prayed for California, I had to ask for forgiveness because I didn't have good thoughts about California. And, and that sounds, you know, somewhat childish, but I did not. I just thought of all the things that Hollywood is doing to the church this is one way God is getting even with them. And all of a sudden, I make God responsible for the rain and the floods in California. My friends, those are thoughts that we have to deal with. They didn't do me any harm. So we don't grieve at their calamities. We pray for them. 
We pray for them and we seek to be reconciled to them and to show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That thought came from a man by the name of Thomas Watson and he wrote that over 300 years ago. Thought, what a beautiful thought. So here then, out of what Watson wrote, seven things to know that you have forgiven. Number one, you resist thoughts of revenge. You resist thoughts of revenge. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Number two. Don't seek to do them mischief. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays another person evil for evil. Number three. Wish them well. Luke 6.28 Bless those who curse you. Number four, grieve at their calamities. Feel for them. Keep that there for a minute. You remember what happened on October 2, 2007, when Charles Roberts, in a little town in Pennsylvania, went into an Amish community and just opened bullets and killing innocent little children. How did the Amish community respond to that? Listen to this. It was announced that the Amish community had donated money to the killer's widow and their three children. They donated money to the killer's widow. Listen to this. I think that the most powerful demonstration of the depth of the Amish forgiveness was when members of the Amish community went to the killer's, to the killer's burial service at the cemetery. Several families, Amish families, who had buried their own daughters just the day before were in attendance and they hugged the widow and hugged members of the killer's family. Forgive. Then the misconception that the Amish had quickly gotten over the tragedy was one of the many about the community. According to this, the founder said, no, they hurt. They felt the pain. They were angry. But what they did, see, it is possible, my friends, that the offended can become the offender. Because we are to be angry and don't sin. See, that's when we run into the problem. When you stand praying, forgive. Don't, don't rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when they stumble. Proverbs 24, 17. Five, pray for them. Pray for them. Matthew 5, 44. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Number six, seek rec rec reconciliation where possible. Romans 12, 18. If possible, spoken that last week, so far as depend upon you, live at peace with all men. Number seven, be always willing to come to their relief. I love this one. Very interesting. From Exodus chapter 23 and verse 4. Listen to what it says. <laughs> if you meet your enemy's animal strain, don't let it just keep wandering. Catch the animal and take it back to your enemy. I, I mean, really. It's his business. He should have put up a stronger fence. I mean, I can make all kinds of excuses. But if I know that this belongs to, my, to someone who literally hurt me, the scripture says, catch the donkey and take it back to your enemy. That's how you know you have forgiven. So forgiveness is not easy. Not easy at all. So there's the upward ministry where we come into the presence of the greatness of God. There is the outward ministry where we forgive one another. And then lastly, there is the downward ministry. Verse 25, again, the downward ministry. What is the downward ministry? Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you. That's a troubling verse. Because it is saying, does that mean that if I don't forgive, God isn't going to forgive me? No, that's not what it means. Sounds like that in, in, in the English translation. But listen to what it means, friend. In fact, let, let me give you one little word in verse 25. Underline this word, if you, if you please. If you have anything against anyone... So that your heavenly Father in heaven will forgive, will forgive you. That is not in the present tense. That's in the future tense. What it means is, I will want to forgive. Because in the past, God has forgiven me. And in the future... When I need forgiveness, he will give it. See, that's, that's what it means. Your heavenly Father will forgive you. Some of the translations says that your heavenly Father may forgive you. The word simply means that in the future when I need forgiveness, just as I have been forgiven and I keep on forgiving, he will forgive me. This is not a negative thought. It's a positive one. Listen to, listen to Ephesians 4.32. Forgive one another as Christ has also forgiven you. So when the reason God is saying to forgive one another, listen, is because when I have been forgiven in the ocean of God's forgiveness, I have the wherewithal to give forgiveness to others. Because God's forgiveness, my friends, is so huge. You know, I might sin against my wife once every 10 years. <laughs> but I sin against God every moment I breathe. 
and he forgives me. That's why he said 70 times 7. Now, you know that I was being frivolous by saying, and I don't know if I should have said it, you will forgive me. <laughs> what I mean, friends, it is easy to hold a grudge against someone because they have offended us. What if God ever held a grudge against you and me? We have forgiven, we have offended him over 70 times 7 a day, and he says, if you repent, you're forgiven. What, what, a, what, a, what a beautiful, beautiful way in which to live. The downward ministry means that I am the object of a forgiven person, therefore I can forgive those who trespass against me as I have been forgiven. I've been closing with a story. This one is not a happy one. It's a kind of difficult story, but you will see. John and Isabel lived a very quiet life. One day in the quietness of their, built their, their, their home, John said to Isabel, guess who's coming to dinner? And since Isabel could not guess, John decided to tell Isabel who was coming to dinner. His former wife was coming to dinner. Isabel sat almost speechless as John told her about his former wife. She was going to visit for dinner, and not only was she going to pay a visit, she was going to stay there permanently. I can just see some of the ladies' heads going, are you joking? <laughs> Isabel listened patiently as John gave explanation about his former wife, who had been missing for almost 20 years. She all disappeared in South America. No one had heard from her during the time. Then she showed up in Germany, Bonn, Germany, then in Rome, and then in Milan, Italy. John was now 75 years old, and Isabel thought, well, he's getting old. He needs some kind of excitement, so I'll just step aside and let him enjoy his former wife. The day came on the 3rd of September, 1971. John's ex-wife arrived. As they settled down, John, his ex-wife, and Isabel sat around the dinner table His ex-wife would say absolutely nothing, nothing, not a smile. Isabel was so kind that she decided to even help her fix, fix her hair. Yet, she was cold and indifferent. Visitors noticed when they would visit the home that she would say, 
not a word. The reason that she couldn't, didn't say a word is because she had been dead for 19 years. You see, what was coming home was a dead body. Her body had been embalmed. They spent over $100,000 embalming her body. Her beauty had remained and everything. And on the 3rd of September, 1971, the body of John's ex-wife was delivered to him, a cadaver. She was the object of a dictator's affection. He could not get over her. And even in her death, John's real name, well, the English name is John. The South American name is Juan, J-U-A-N. Her name is Evita. John Peranan Evita. And you say, what has this to do with forgiveness? Let me tell you what it has to, friends. When we fail to forgive, we live with a dead body. And that dead body sits with us wherever we go. And every time we want to be released or to show kindness, that dead body is still there. We still take care of it. We have to hold on because I was hurt so deeply. That's a cadaver. I want to hold on because that person disappointed me. I want to hold on because that person was not kind to me. My friends, listen to what Jesus said. When we are released by God to know how to forgive, we, li we live and we enter a new world. We enter a world that we would never know unless we're willing to get rid of Evita. And I don't know who Evita might be for you. I know who Evita was for me. When I had to write a letter to someone who had hurt me, and I didn't ask for their forgiveness for doing what they did to me. I asked them to forgive me for the way I was thinking about them. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Don't live with Evita. Live in the ocean of God's forgiveness so that you're able to forgive as you experience forgiveness. Father, it is so easy to speak of forgiveness, but oh, how difficult to practice. But I pray that this little series on forgiveness will help us, Lord, to be set free so that there's no evitas in our lives. We think of, we think of the story of John and Isabel as, as a silly story. But oh God, how it displays for us how as he was stupid at what he was doing, so are we when we allow an unforgiving spirit to reside in us. I pray that as we take these moments 
to reflect and to respond. You will set somebody free this morning that Evita will be crucified in the place where she needs to be put. No more to sit around the table with us. No more to be in the bedroom with us. No more to be in the car with us. We're set free because we have been forgiven. We are able to forgive. And our prayers then will be heard in heaven because we are free now. There's no blockage. God will respond to me because there's nothing between my soul and the Savior. Thank you for hearing us, Lord, as we have delivered a vita to you. Set us free, for which we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.